Hello, and welcome to the Heathen's Journey podcast. I'm your host, Siri Vincent Clough, and I'm so glad you're here. This is the show where I explore heathenry through a queer lens. We will be talking about traditional witchcraft, runes, folklore, and so much more. Join us, won't you, as we journey to the ends of the Nine Realms and back. Hello, hello. Welcome back to the Heathen's Journey podcast. I am so excited to release this episode today. This was a fantastic conversation that I had with Corey Hutchison back in December, and I sincerely apologize for keeping it from you for so long. I just had a few other interviews I needed to get to before I could release this one. But ever since I started a podcast, I knew that I wanted to have Corey on the show. He is supremely knowledgeable and a true delight to speak with. I'm not going to do too many introductions here because I'm eager to get into the meat of the podcast. So here goes. Corey Thomas Hutchison is the co-host of the popular podcasts New World Witchery, Chasing Foxfire, and Myth Taken, a Buffy the Vampire Slayer podcast. He is the author of the book New World Witchery, A Trove of American Folk Magic. He has a doctorate in American studies with specializations in folklore, religion, and ethnicity from Penn State. He is a contributor to the Oxford Handbook of American Folklore and Folklife Studies and American Myths, Legends, and Tall Tales. Visit him online at newworldwitchery.com. And without further ado, here we go. Well, hello, Corey. It's wonderful to have you on the podcast. Thank you. So glad to be here. So as I had like just said before I hit record, I have been listening to your podcast for years, so it's wonderful to have you on the show. Thanks. It's absolutely delightful to be here. I'm I'm really excited about this. Yay. So, okay. Um, I have so many thoughts. Um, First of all, I think it's really helpful to define terms, especially because a lot of the people listening to this podcast are heathen in nature, and a lot of people who listen to this podcast are folk- Loric nerds in nature, <laughs> much mm-hmm. like myself. Um, so why is your podcast and book titled New World Witchery? And also, what does folk magic mean to you? Uh, those, are, um, those are really good questions. And I've, I've said this a few, few times in a few different places, but you know, it, it, one thing I've, I've thought about a lot since putting the book out um, is if I really went back and had to do it all over again, I probably wouldn't call... The show or the book New World Witchery, um, and that's not as you know a slight on you know the 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 sort of catchiness of the phrase, but it's sort of recognition that you know who is this a new world to? It certainly is not a new world to the you know literally millions of indigenous inhabitants that were here before colonization. Um, you know, and I'm somebody who's sitting here on you know occupied Lenni Lenape land. Um, and you know, this is also a place where quite a few uh, German people settled. We have a very strong Pennsylvania German population, um, so you have kind of this conflict between colonizer and indigenous. And for the people who were coming from Germany, sure, it seemed new, it seemed novel, seemed um, sort of surprising. But for those who were here, the 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 only thing that was new was all of a sudden uh, the disappearance of their culture and their land, and sort of being pushed away from you know, ancestral spaces. So, so there's definitely a sense of like, Oh, would I have called it that? Would I have done that? But in the end, that is a kind of terminological, um, turn that we have. Uh, it's, it's something that kind of happened, um, you know, in, in terms of 
people are very familiar with the concept of the quote unquote new world. And at least allows the opportunity to have this conversation, right? So that, that, that it's called this, I can come in and say like, oh, well, if we're going to talk about this, we should mention this isn't a new world to a, a number of people. For people coming from other spaces, from places outside of North America, it is a new experience for them. Um, and so what I kind of look at when I'm talking about this sort of witchcraft and, and folk magic, and those can be distinct things too, um, in this space is that they are oftentimes being brought in, um, by, by people who are colonizing or settling in this land. And, and I, I, I you know, I want to be careful about, you know, um, saying, you know, brought in so, sometimes, um, sometimes they're doing it by choice and sometimes it's by force. Um, obviously there are a lot of people who are forced to be here, um, thinking not just of, um, uh, African, African, uh, hostages who were taken and, and enslaved here, but also a number of, uh, for example, um, Asian, uh, Asian people who were brought in to work, um, railroads and things like that. And then were subjected to term, terms and conditions very similar to slavery once slavery, um, was officially abolished. So there's a lot of like importing people and then sort of, <laughs> you know, their customs are imported along with them, um, whether or not they want to be, but, all of that is a very, sorry, that's a very heavy way to start this. A lot of it is to say that um, this is, uh, we are we are sort of a place where there's a lot of crossroads happening. And so there's a lot of spaces where folklore, folk magic, traditions, practices, customs, beliefs are all intersecting, crossing over one another, exchanging in some cases, sometimes, again, forcibly, sometimes willingly, sometimes a little bit of both. Um, and so you wind up with this really interesting mesh um, of, of folk magic that crosses over the entire sort of North American continent, sometimes having very strong regional variations and forms, um, and sometimes sort of, uh, being more of a, uh, you know, uh, uh, a gradient pattern, right? Where it sort of fades between two of them and there's a, a space between them, which is sometimes where the most interesting stuff happens. So that's kind of what I talk about with new world witchery is it's this, um, f you know, traditional folk magical practice, um, that that comes from a lot of places and is influenced by a lot of different people and events and history um, in, in a very relatively short period of time um, in this space. So it's kind of what I mean by that. What was, I'm sorry, I think I may have lost the thread of the second question. What was the second one? That is okay. The second question um, was, how do you define folk magic? So like we're talking about folk magic and you'd actually already even mentioned in that answer that uh, folk magic and witchcraft can be kind of thought of separately sometimes. Mm -hmm. So like, what is folk magic? And then I'll, I'll kind of piggyback onto this question. Um, how do you define folk magic as opposed to say, you know, ceremonial magic or like a Wiccan ritual or, you know, other forms of magic? Sure. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to start by, by doing the devious thing and turning something around and asking you a question. Um, what is a witch? To you. Mm. Um, to me, a witch is a magic worker who um, often works on the uh, outskirts of society as a figure that is um, not fully accepted, but also mm -hmm. not fully banished. Mm -hmm. Okay, I like that definition. Yeah, there, there's like, to me, there's something transgressive about the witch 
that is necessary. It's like necessarily transgressive. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, a term like a folk magician or magician to me, isn't as like inherently transgressive. Right. And so that, but that, so that brings up some really interesting questions. So if that's the case, does that mean, does that mean if a curandera is doing folk magical folk healing, right. Um, but they are um, seen by, by the majority of their community as somewhat suspect because what they're doing is not in line with either conventional medical wisdom or, um, or with sort of uh, church approved uh, methods. Does that then make them a witch or are they still distinctly different to you? Um, I would say that witch is a term that can like overlay folk magic in a lot of ways. So like it almost to me, witch almost to me feels like a, 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 term that is weirdly self like self-ascribed you know like Uh we we have claimed back the word witch Mm -hmm. reclaimed the word witch um but also it it can be an accusatory term yes thank you that's so this is the this is kind of the the big trick to this right is that contemporary contemporarily a lot of what you're talking about makes sense but if you told somebody in you know 1820s um you know um, you know, Eastern Ohio, Northeastern Kentucky, you know, moving into kind of the Appalachians or something like that. If you told them they were a witch, they wouldn't take that as a badge of honor. And in fact, today, many people wouldn't take that as a badge of honor. Um, it's, it's something that could be hurled as an accusation just as easily as it can be a sort of, um, you know, uh, sort of self-empowering sort of framework. Um, and so that the reason I, the reason I turn that around, the reason I ask that of you is because these are really very difficult terms to define and everybody's going to have slightly different variations on the way that they look at them. Um, and so somebody saying like, so I know some people who say you can't be a witch unless you work with these really specific forces, right? Um, you have to be, and cursing has to kind of enter into the practice somewhere. And I know some people who say, no, you know, witchcraft can legitimately be, um, you know, the, any use of folk magic. Some people tie it to um, a more religious framework, like you said, Wicca, right? So that so people will adopt the term witch within that as well. So it's such a flexible term. Um, Ronald Hutton has a book called The Witch, um, which, you know, conveniently enough, does lay out um, some, some good sort of four anthropological definitions that you could operate off of when you're talking about um, what a witch is, most of which are not seen as positives by their community. Um, although they can be seen as that, what you're talking about, that sort of transgressive sort of edge of society form as well. Um, and so the reason I, I even throw all that together is because when we're talking about folk magic and witchcraft with these terms being so hard to define, um, it's going to, my definitions are not going to satisfy everybody. Um, and you know, so I'm just going to be coming at this from the perspective of somebody who does, you know, folklore studies and say folk magic to me, um, is, is, it is the magic done by the folk, obviously. So we have to kind of break that down and say, what is folk? What is magic? So folk to me is any group of people that share common culture. Um, and that, and this is, this is where it can get really difficult for people because most people think of folk and they have a very specific image that pops to mind the same way that a lot of people, when they hear the word, witch, the first thing that pops to mind is, you know, sort of Elphaba or, uh, you know, the wicked witch of the West, right? Yeah. Uh, which, you know, that is a version of what a witch is um, and a version of what folk is. Yeah, it can be, you know, people living, you know, like on Victorian farm, sort of, you know, spinning and weaving and canning their own things and doing all that. 
But folk groups are not just about like something that is old fashioned. They are about people sharing common culture. So there are a lot of, for example, um, there's a lot of kind of queer folklore, right, um, that exists among the queer community um, for everything from, you know, uh, uh, sort of queer body culture can be one uh, one way of looking at that. Um, uh, there's uh, queer idiomatic expression. So, for example, knowing the difference, you know, between uh, a twink and a bear, right, that is part of... It's an important part of queer culture. You have to, you know, have to be able to decode that if you're a member of queer culture. So it is folk. Um, it's a folk group. So, and I would venture to say there's probably queer folk magic that is specific to queer people. <laughs> yes, one hundred percent. Yeah, I also don't get you know this locked in idea like oh folk just means you know if they did it in the 1800s then therefore it is folk magic. <laughs> um, right. Because that's. It's not, it's not, not quite right. And so if the, if the folk are people who share culture, then their magic is the way that they sort of make sense. Um, they sort of uh, make sense of their world and try to take control over that world using um, non-rational, um, sometimes supernatural means, uh, oftentimes things like spells or um, using traditional cures or curing methods. Sometimes prayer enters into it. Um, it, it is, uh, it is trying to alter the state of the world using um, these kind of um, what we might think of as superstitions, but I'm I'm pretty picky about that word too, <laughs> um, because I I feel like superstition gets a bad rap, and it really means that you that you believe that there are cosmological connections between things, even if you can't specifically point to what those connections are um, in this sort of understanding way. It's it's much more of a sort of accepting that there's a sort of language of the universe and you're just, you're just trying to write in that language, whether or not you fully understand the sentence that you're writing when you do, a, when you do a spell. So, um, so that's kind of what I'm talking about with folk magic. Um, it also, it's really important to remember that folk, um, doesn't have authorship. Um, there's no one author of a folk ballad. There's no one author of a folk tale or a fairy tale because they change depending on who's telling them the iterations, the variations that go around. And that's where they can kind of become separated out from ceremonial magic or Wicca because both ceremonial magic and Wicca are very much kind of based on um, certain types of hierarchies and certain types of very um, specific uh, mythologies. Um, and that's, you know, they're, they're much more sort of orthodox uh, and orthopraxic. Um, than, uh, than folk magic, which can tend to be a little more fluid and adaptable. There's certain pieces that get conserved between members of the community, but then there's a lot of variation beyond that. And that's not to say that Wiccans and ceremonial magicians don't have folklore and folk magic of their own. They do. But um, what their, their sort of primary practices are tend to be more sort of institutionalized uh, along with um, the sort of religious aspects or the um, you know, grimoire-esque sort of versions of what they're doing, if that makes sense. It absolutely does. And I kind of wanted to start us off on this foot because I think for a lot of us who are magical practitioners, you know, we would not look like at a historical figure like John Dee and say, oh yes, Supreme Folk Magician of England. <laughs> mm -mm. Yeah. Um, but it's how do we get that like implicit definition into the explicit in order to have a conversation. And I think that that's important. Yeah. And I mean, it's important to know, like, you know, Edward Kelly and John D are operating off of ceremonial and Orthodox frameworks and everything like that, but I'm sure they had their own little folklore going on too. <laughs> so they had oh my gosh. They yeah. I'm but, sure they had their own like literal superstitions absolutely. or, you know, like folk practices that were just 
a part of the cultures that they were a part of. Absolutely. I mean, you look at the stuff around the Elizabethan court and just, you know, the fairy lore alone is just explosively magnificent. I love it. Amazing. Um, I'm so glad you brought up fairy lore because (laughs) I um, am kind of obsessed with folklore and Mm -hmm. with fairy tales, um, specifically because I love the stories. And that's one of the things that I really adore about your book is that you actually tell folkloric stories like in each chapter sometimes several stories in a chapter. Um, So I guess I would ask, um, as you are compiling, you know, folklore, what is the role of story? What is the role of that folk story in Mm. finding the actual practice and tradition that comes out of that culture? Well, one, I really like that you, you mentioned, like, how do you connect the story to the culture? Because that's so important because a lot of times... This this is a problem we have in folk magic is somebody will hear like, oh, you do this, um, you know, tie a dime around your ankle with a red thread and it protects you from harm. That's great. It's really, it's a lovely folk charm that we find in African-American traditional uh, folk magic. Uh, sometimes you call just called hoodoo. Sometimes there's other variations on this, um, but it's a very common practice. But the problem is when you just have the practice and you don't have the context, um, you you lose something in the translation. Uh, you don't understand that, you know, for example, foot trek magic is really, really crucial in importation from Afri- West African traditional practices. So there's a reason that wearing it around your ankle is going to protect you from picking up um, harmful magic. Um, that you might walk over because somebody's the people are laying foot tracks within that tradition, right? So the stories themselves provide a whole lot of contextual information. If you want to go to the crossroads to to gain a new skill or something like that, understanding not just the formula, but hearing the stories of how people have done it before prepares you to 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 deal with whatever you encounter there because oftentimes those things are going to shift or change a little bit but there will be key things that you want to look out for so having that context is really really important with the story um the stories uh also uh sometimes have a lot of coded information in them um and this can be part of the context or it can be entirely different information fairy tales oftentimes for example have a lot of really interested coded information so um i just told i was just doing a a winter event recently um, where I wound up telling the story of Frau Hola um, from the Grimm's fairy tale. Are you familiar with that one? Um, I believe so, but uh, tell it for our listeners. <laughs> okay. I'll do the quick and dirty version. Uh, All right. uh, evil stepmother, two daughters. One is her, one is her, her, her beloved daughter who is the kind of mean, ugly one is how the fairy tale describes her. Uh, one is the, the beautiful but much abused one. Um, she has to go down to sit by a well and do her spinning on her spindle. Um, and she spins until her fingers bleed. Um, and then she one day drops her spindle into the well. Her stepmother says, go get it. So she has to j- dive into the well. She winds up falling into this weird other world where then she helps um, uh, some bread that's being overcooked from, gets it out of the oven, saves some apples. And some stories there's another animal that she'll help along the way. <clears throat> and then she meets this old woman with huge teeth named Frau Hola. Um, who it turns out when she shakes out her blankets, when the snow comes to earth and the blankets are full of, you know, goose feathers that look like snow. And so there's some very specific, you know, Berta associations going on there. (laughs) Um, uh, And so we, we know like 
oh, this is a, this is derived from some Germanic mythology, but there's it's done in fairy tale form. Uh, so she, uh, you know, she's the good child, and she does all the work for Frau Hola. Frau Hola sends her home with a bunch of gold all over her. Um, uh, then the stepmother says, "Hey, I should, you know I can get two dollars worth of gold out of this. Why don't you go down the well? <laughs> you know, second second child." Well, the second one does, doesn't help anybody, does the minimum amount of work. Frau Holler sends her back um, covered in pitch. Uh, and so she's, you know, she never, she's never quite able to wash it all off, right? Um, so within that coded tale, you have the concept spinner, right? Um, so spinning as a sort of meditative act and a sort of trance-inducing state. You have the blood on the spindle that takes you through the well. It's it's very much this kind of otherworld journeying story, right? That can kind of lead you through a practice that you would then be able to do. Um, and there were a lot of, you know, uh, practices where, for example, when we get together and spin together and t- tell these stories and be sharing this kind of coded information, um, sometimes that would then sort of be like, oh, so you, so you have you met, have you met Frau Hola too? Yeah, I think I met her too. You know, this kind of like, oh, okay. So, you know, what's this little charm that we're doing? What are we doing with this, you know, thread? You know, what can you do? You know, blood on thread becomes red thread. Very important in folk magic, right? Um, mm-hmm. So there's a lot of stuff that kind of ties into it. So you can get a lot of kind of decoded information from fairy tales as well. So yeah. I, did that answer your question? I feel like maybe I went way off, off trail there. <laughs> No, you answered the question beautifully. I mean, I think that the best way of answering that question was to give an example, which you totally did. Here is a totally different side tangent that I think Mm -hmm. listeners to the podcast will be super interested in. So obviously, like this is the Heathen's Journey podcast. Um, Mm -hmm. I tend to be of the more Nordic flavor of heathens. So Mm -hmm. pulling on more like folklore of the Trolldom tradition rather than, Mm -hmm. you know, like the um, Germanic tradition. However... I know that you are based in Pennsylvania, yes? Yes, I am. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and there is a huge, uh, amazing folk culture in Pennsylvania of the Pennsylvania Deutsch, the Pennsylvania Dutch. Um, mm-hmm. So I was wondering if we could talk about one of, uh, if we could talk about one of the most famous American grimoires, mm-hmm. which is the Long Hidden Friend. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is- so... For people who are not um, familiar with the Long Hidden Friend, um, could you tell kind of the the story surrounding this grimoire um, and kind of like how would you approach this very American grimoire? Sure. Um, so this is a this is a grimoire. Grim, grimoire is um, it's it's a little bit of a fuzzy term to apply to it. Uh, it's definitely a you know a book that has magical associations. Um, it's not quite as sort of the formal grimoire that you might find in medieval, uh, late medieval or early modern Germany or something like that. So this is, you know, this is not like the Clevicula Salomonis. Um, this isn't like the Goetia, right? This is this is a very much folksier rendition of that kind of a thing. Um, it's so it's this book that's published by a man named Johann Georg uh, Homan, or is he's anglicized John George Homan. Um, published, I think, around 1820. Don't quote me on the year exactly. Um, and it's this little book, um, this you know, uh, The Long Hidden Friend or a book of uh, cures or remedies, something for man and beast is kind of the subtitle um, because they loved long subtitles at the time. Um, and so they, uh, th- this, this man, uh, Homan, uh, is a Pennsylvania-German um, practitioner of what we think of as kind of powwow, but it, it's important to note like this, 
book is not just magical charms. There's also like a lot of, in some versions of it, you have like a recipe for how to make molasses out of pumpkins. So it's kind of a householder's book, um, kind of, uh, you know, things that you might need to get by if you're kind of on your own on a homestead, um, you know, far from, you know, your closest sort of help. Um, <clears throat> and so because of that, you have, you have some of these kind of practical things. Um, some of it is sort of very medical. Uh, there are, you know, recipes for like, you know, how do you, you know, how do you help cure a sick horse? Right. Uh, and some of those are about like feeding it a specific kind of food or medicine or, um, you know, getting, you know, getting its digestive tract moving. And some of them are about, you know, saying a specific charm, uh, over the horse. Right. And so there are, uh, all sorts of, um, different, uh, verbal charms, some written charms that pop in, pop in there, if I remember correctly. Um, one of the, you know, one of the ones that's really well known is the idea of like the blood verse, um, uh, which is taken from a biblical text. Uh, and, uh, it's basically just, you recite this verse. If somebody has, um, a cut or a, a, a bleeding wound and it helps to close the wound up more quickly. Um, and so you have all these kind of different charms and things that are in Homan's book, um, now that book is published around 1820 or so, um, and is sort of the one that everybody knows about, but it's really important to know that there actually are uh, several different books that are published in there. And I wish I had the list of titles in front of me. Um, but there are, you know, at least three or four other definite books that are like this, that are these kind of like collected charm books found in kind of Pennsylvania, German country, because there was a lot of interest in that, um, particularly in sort of the mid 1800s. Um, and sort of, you know, doing, doing for yourself on your, your homestead or your farm. Um, and so Homan's book becomes kind of the best known one to the point where even owning it, um, can make you a little bit suspect, uh, because some people thought, well, the book itself contains this kind of, these kind of magic charms, therefore it's connected to magic. Um, and there were other books circulating that also had this really bad reputation. So the sixth and seventh books of Moses was very notorious in the Pennsylvania German community. Um, owning that was essentially an admission of witchcraft um, uh, for, for many, many people. Um, so Homan's book kind of gets tied into that too uh, uh, and has this kind of spooky reputation uh, and that sort of elevates it. But eventually over time, the, a lot of Pennsylvania Germans um, try to put some distance between themselves in that um, because they're afraid that people will start seeing them as very backward. Um, uh, because, because there's a fairly famous murder trial that kind of ties into Pennsylvania German, um, powwow or brachurai practice, um, that happens in the 1920s. So there's some distance that people try to kind of put between them in this, this book, but the book itself, um, contains quite a few charms. Many of them, uh, actually are, <laughs> um, Homan's not entirely original. Nobody's expecting him to be. Um, he's taking a lot of these from, um, uh, the uh, Petit, Al I think it's a, the Petit Albert, um, the, the little book of Albertus Magnus. Um, and then one, I think that was called the Romanus Buchlein, which uh, is another sort of German language grimoire. And he's kind of adapting them for, for contemporary or for him contemporary use. Um, so he's pulling from a lot of things. And this is, this is not to, <laughs> it's not to like disparage him for being a plagiarist or anything <laughs> um, because everybody's doing this at the time. Elphias Levi is, absolutely you know plagiarizing people i feel like this is very much a like feature of the grimoire tradition um mm -hmm. and which is actually why i call it the long hit 
why I call the long hidden friend a grimoire is because it kind of has a lot of those traits that I associate with grimoires. So on Sunday, I actually just taught a class called creative grimoiring um, with Mm -hmm. a couple of colleagues of mine. And um, I was talking about like, what is a grimoire versus, you know, other just kind of like research notebooks or whatever. And Mm -hmm. to me, a grimoire is fascinating because it's the very presence of the grimoire in your home is in a lot of cases supposed to give you um, magical capabilities, right? Just owning a grimoire. And that is very much like a part of that tradition surrounding the long hidden friend is that this, this gives you, or, you know, the sixth and seventh book of Moses, absolutely. Um, and so that's kind of why yeah. I think about it as a grimoire instead of just like, oh, this is a, a household book. Um, no, you're absolutely right on that front for sure. It would fall in with the grimoires. I think I think I tend to think of grimoires as having having some sort of spirit summoning components to them, and that's not really a part of this one. But you're right; it's it's absolutely kind of a full grimoire in that that capacity. So, oh yes, yes, we could we could talk about spirit summoning and grimoires <laughs> for a long time. Sure. I'm sure. I'm sure we could. <laughs> Um, but actually this brings up another interesting point. So one of the things that I wanted to ask you, and I kind of envisioned this happening later in our conversation, but it's fine that it's happening right now is that, um, how do you like this idea of finding the folk magic, right? Like what Mm -hmm. sources do you go to? How do you go about this research? And, um, I think you'd be, uh, hard pressed to, find a lot of folk magic if you were ignoring things like almanacs or mm-hmm. you know grandmother's planting diaries or mm-hmm. <laughs> like whatever it is so how do you how do you find this folk magic if it is you know perhaps a little bit older than what people are contempor- like practicing in the contemporary and how do you trace the lineage of folk magic Mm, well, lineage is tricky because, again, folk magic doesn't have singular authorship. Um, it's passed down through cultures as opposed to through individuals, which puts it at odds with a lot of people who want to make claims about sort of hereditary lines of witchcraft. Um, because what's really happening is people are practicing folk magic that is inherited from their communities as opposed to just inherited from, you know, granny. Um, so so there's, there's, there's a distinction I, I think is important to make there. Um, tracking that stuff down, like you said, almanacs are, uh, are and have been, uh, a sort of, uh, bastion of, and, uh, you know, resting place for so much folklore, um, for as long as they've been printed in, um, North America. And that is a long time. <laughs> it's been, uh, basically as long as there have been Europeans here, we've been, you know, printing almanacs uh, on this land. Um, so Ben Franklin famously had poor Richard's almanac, um, but his was, hardly the only one being printed at the time. Uh, he, he really did it because he was like, there's money to be had, you say, let's, let's do that. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. A note on this. One of my favorite mm-hmm. pieces of folklore is, uh, the Jersey devil. My spouse is from New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was doing a little bit of research into the, um, supposed beginnings of the Jersey devil. And they do say that the woman who is supposedly the one who birthed the Jersey devil all those centuries ago was married to an almanac writer Mm -hmm. um, who was in direct, like, like in this part of the folklore, like they say that um, this almanac writer was in direct competition with Ben Franklin. And so everybody was kind of like upset with him. (laughs) 
<laughs> and therefore, therefore, he deserved his curse, right? <laughs> ben right. Franklin is hardly is hardly a uh, a, piv- a pivotal figure in in some ways. He had some very questionable things. He was um, not shy about his racism in many ways. <laughs> oh God, yeah. Um, it just goes yeah. to show you, like American capitalism, like bred into the folklore. <laughs> yeah, for well, centuries. I mean. Man, I mean, what are we gonna do, right? <laughs> so, like, it's it is there. Um, you're, yeah, you're you're not wrong on that uh, for sure. Uh, the um, yeah, in the Jersey Devil lore is really fascinating. That's the Mother Lead story uh, about um, you know cursing her thirteenth child and all that kind of stuff. Is you know is it based in fact? Maybe, maybe not. But yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So yeah, the almanac writers, yeah, do have this kind of interesting. I don't know, this association with, you know, they have ways of knowing things because they print, they print all the astrological charts that will tell you when to plant your crops and perhaps when to cut your hair. And so maybe you can kind of live your life by the almanac. Um, and those things are, you know, exhibiting influences from the moon passing through star phases. And there's a very famous kind of the astrological man that gets printed in all these almanacs. And they frequently have, you know, home remedies and cures in there, many of which are herbal or sort of... Um, topical and, and physical in nature, and some of which have uh, a hint of the magical about them. Magicians, if you look in the back, even of contemporary almanacs, are frequently selling their services um, as, you know, either psychic readers or consultants, or um, they, you know, sometimes will sell potions by mail and things like that. So this is, you know, a longstanding tradition with almanacs. Um, the big thing, if you're wanting to investigate folk magic, is you have to connect with the folk. You have to connect with the, the people. And that... Um, for a lot of people, that can be really tricky because a lot of people who are interested in magic may have adversarial relationships with their home communities or even their families. Um, and that's okay. Uh, because one of the things I really like to point out to people is like, everyone belongs to folk communities. It doesn't just have to be the one that you, you think you need to belong to. Um, you can belong, you, well, workplace is a folk community, right? Uh, the, the the job you do, that we have so many fairy tales and folk tales that are based on like the miller, the the you know, the carpenter, right? Um, the, you know, the soldier. So your occupation can have a ton of folklore and folk magic into it. So looking at that is one thing that you can do. Um, looking at the, like you said, the grandmother's, you know, grandmother's planting diary, grandmother's Bible in some cases, right? You're going to find notes that are going to lead you in certain directions, talking to the people in those communities and knowing kind of what the the things are that are going to um, release some of that folklore. Because if the, the problem is a lot of people want to, you know, run like a bull at the gate towards like, tell me about your witchcraft, grandmother. And grandmother says, I don't do witchcraft. Please leave my house. Strange person, right? Um, so I do not uh, do so the witchcraft. <laughs> <laughs> it is not my thing. Um, and then you, but, but if you turn it around and say like, uh, you know, like, you know, oh, I've been having really bad headaches lately. Do you have anything, you know, do you know anything for that? I don't really want to take any aspirin. Then all of a sudden she's going to be like, yes, I do. If you just press here on your hand and say this little charm, you know, that's, that'll help relieve that, the headache. And she's not thinking of it as witchcraft and folk magic. It's, it's knowing that there's going to be some, some ways of talking about this. 
um, that don't rely on those terms uh, and focusing on areas that are high, high risk, high reward uh, in people's lives. So, um, you know, asking, you know, well, you know, what were some of your traditions at your wedding? Did you have anything interesting at your wedding? It's a big day for a lot of people. So there's going to be folklore associated with it. Similarly for funerals or that, you know, well, what did you do? How did you, you know, what were some of the things you did to memorialize grandpa when he passed away? Okay. Well, there's some, some folklore that's going to be embedded in that. Um, so knowing those kind of key spaces to focus on, um, and asking these kind of questions that are open-ended and actually a conversation, you don't, you're not just, you shouldn't just be engaging with the community to, to pilfer it of its folklore and folk magic. You should be engaging with the community because the entire context is interesting and valuable to you, um, because you are, uh, potentially a member of that community or somehow connected to that community. And so because of that, that's why you're you're able to access this material and you can then sort of develop it within your own framework too. Um, but you have to kind of start with the people. And like you said, almanacs are really good collections of folklore, regional or local collections of ghost stories. Uh, you know, for example, uh, finding local farm, farm records and farm almanacs are really good. Genealogical societies can be remarkably good because they will have so many letters and so many books by people from previous generations um, they can really help you kind of uh, do some unpacking there too. So there's a lot of avenues in, into understanding folk magic and folk practice, but I think it really has to start with engaging with the community itself. Absolutely. Um, and I'll put so, Windows box now. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. This is You're the guest on my podcast. Like, please get on your soapbox every time I ask you a question. <laughs> um, so... In the introduction to your book, you talked about how you are by no means a polyglot, but you are have started and abandoned learning many languages. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I felt that. I, I felt that. Um, so I was wondering, like, uh, to what extent is learning language um, necessary for studying folk magic? I think it's pretty crucial. Um, I mean, if you're a member of a community already and you don't speak the language that is sort of thought of as the dominant language, that that may not be the sticking point, right? So, like, I have students in my classroom who are um, Latinx um, students, and some of them have grown up not speaking Spanish, um, which is fine. You know, they're still that doesn't make them any less Latinx in their own communities, right? Um, but were I going to do kind of folkloric work or, you know, want to talk about folklore with people within that community, I would probably, you know, want to at least make a cursory effort to try and understand some of the terminology, some of the language, um, learn as much of the language as I could. I'm actually um, kind of intermediate level with Spanish, so that that's a fairly comfortable place. But then it's also really important for me to recognize that, hey, the version of Spanish I know, that kind of, you know, school book learned Spanish is not necessarily going to be entirely accurate for that folk community either. There's going to be variations on that that happen um, within different communities. There's going to be, for example, if you're talking about people who are um, from uh, sort of the north, northeast, well, northwest of Mexico, um, you may have uh, people who have a lot of Nahuatl uh, uh, loan words that are kind of coming into the language as well. And so understanding like, oh, maybe I need to pick up a little Nahuatl uh, as a part of this too. Um, it's it's important. I I really do think language. I mean, it's 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 important because it helps you again understand context and understand the communities better. It's also 
uh, you can think of it this way. It's also kind of an offering you're making. Um, you're saying, I'm willing to, I'm willing to make this effort. So you just think about like, if you've ever traveled someplace where people don't speak your native language, you know, that you make the effort is sometimes the thing that will, that will get people to help you. <laughs> you know? yep. If you at least make the effort, your pronunciation can be garbage. <laughs> and they will say, <laughs> okay, I know what you're asking. I will help you. <laughs> and sometimes they'll even be like, I will speak your native tongue now because you are so badly butchering mine, but I appreciate the effort. <laughs> so, yes. um, so it is kind of this, it is kind of a, I, I think to some extent, a, a thing that you are, you're putting, putting yourself aside so that you can enter into that community on, on their own terms a little more and, and make it less about you and more about them, which is important. I think it's really important. Absolutely. And I think it's also important for historical research as well. So one of yeah. I'm currently attempting to learn Swedish um, and Norwegian kind of Fun. at the same time, doing, which is... Are you doing Bokmals Swedish? Or no, I'm sorry, Bokmal Norwegian? Uh, I have, yes, basically. But I there are a lot of Norwegians around here. So like I could mm -hmm. practice with a more like folk speaker. Mm -hmm. um, but around, you know in the late 1800s and around the turn of the century when there were a lot of immigrants coming into Minnesota, um, there were a lot of Swedish and Norwegian language newspapers. Mm -hmm. And those are just a treasure trove they of are, yeah. like interesting little, you know, historic tidbits or whatever. Um, and, you know, the same could be said of, I'm sure like contemporary, um, newspapers and other languages as well. We have like a really large um, like Latinx community here as well as Somali and Hmong co communities here. And so there are like a mm -hmm. ton of, you know, there are just like a ton of non-English language newspapers here. So that's been one of my areas of interest in terms of folk research these days. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the newspapers. I should have mentioned that when you asked about like sources to go to for folk folklore. Um, regional newspapers are huge. Um, they're always going to have little columns of interest reporting on different things. And yeah, and sometimes they're linguistically, they, there may be a barrier. So for example, here I can, I can scratch by reading basic German things. Um, but Deutsch, uh, the Pennsylvania German dialect is very, very, very different for me. And I can't, I can't get very far with it. Um, despite having lived here a while and tried to work with it. And there was a whole bunch of papers, um, published in that language for forever. Um, still, still are some, uh, published up here. Uh, so, so it's a little impenetrable at times for me. And so I have to kind of rely on like translations and doing my best to, to figure it out. But newspapers can be really, really good sources for, for folklore and folk information for sure. This is a little tidbit that I may cut, um, from this episode, but, um, it's a lot of it is that a lot of the immigrant, um, communities, like the European immigrant communities, um, kept their language a lot closer to the time that they arrived. Mm -hmm. um, whereas, you know, Deutsch, German, mm -hmm. has continued to evolve. Mm -hmm. um, even English, uh, yeah. American English accents are apparently a lot more similar to uh, Elizabethan. 1600s yeah. Elizabethan um, than, you know, contemporary English, contemporary British English, I should say. Mm -hmm. um, I was taking Old Norse with a a professor who had, you know, taken some students on a linguistics um, trip to England. And there was a, a very famous linguist who was 
uh, going to give a Shakespearean reading in a reconstruction of Shakespeare's dialect, a mm -hmm. reconstruction of Shakespeare's accent. And, you know, he, he did the reading and then when um, they were all done, everybody's like, oh, wow, that was really, really cool. Like, dang. And my professor asked, you know, if the students had anything to say. And one of them was like, you know, that's so interesting because it sounded just like my Ohio bus driver's voice. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I just think that's really interesting too. And also might be why it's harder, you know, to learn things like Deitch um, yeah. because it's not going to be what's taught at all. No, it's distinctly different. Contemporary modern languages are you know, they, they, like you said, they've evolved. I, I, I've heard a similar story about the, um, so, so when child, um, Francis child was, uh, doing research on the ballads, uh, the child ballads and things like that. Um, he wound up finding a lot of them in Appalachia because, <laughs> because they were so well-preserved here, uh, very much kind of as they were in England and like they had sort of changed or evolved or faded in England, but like Appalachia, they're still singing them. Right. So Bonnie Barbara Allen is still Bonnie Barbara Allen. Right. Um, so yeah, there's, yeah, you're right. And, and I, I've also heard, um, people talk about like doing, um, so there's this, uh, like, I think this theater company out of Blacksburg, Virginia, which is kind of there in the Appalachian mountains. And they, there's some people who've talked about the fact that when they do their performances is probably the closest that you would get to how it would sound in an Elizabethan era performance because the Appalachian accents and the Appalachian, um, language structures are so natural, um, to Elizabethan English that, it sounds very, very similar to it. Yeah. So that's, it is, it's fascinating. It's really, really neat. So, a bunch, tangent, a bunch of know, like but. really classist people are probably just, you know, losing their minds right now. <laughs> Watching the <your> pearls <laughs> as we speak. <laughs> yeah. They don't know yeah. why. Um, Cause yep. they're not listening to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> they're just, they feel a disturbance in the, in the class structure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> as we said, ripples. <laughs> but it's interesting that you talk about Appalachia um, mm. because that is a region in the United States that is so, you know, people associate Appalachia with folklore, like the like really storied like stuff. And I think that um, living in the upper Midwest, um, there's a ton of folklore here, but I think that a lot of people don't necessarily think of this as a place that has a lot of folklore associated with it. Um, and so my next question to you is kind of, you didn't talk about this in the book as much as I, uh, am a nerd and I had hoped you will, and you would, and maybe you will in a future book, but, um, what are some of the, you know, sort of like overall flavors and folkloric, can you think of like folkloric regions in the United mm -hmm. States? Um, and what does yeah. that look like? Knowing of course knowing, of course, that there are a lot of different cultures in those regions as well. Right. And that's part of why I was very cautious about doing that in the New World Witchery book is because I didn't want it to sort of be like, well, if you're in, you know, if you're in the sort of southwest of the United States, then you're going to be doing Turismo because I'm like, that's super not true. And <laughs> just because you live there doesn't mean that's what you can or should do. Um, right. But um, but yeah, so it was this, it's definitely some some difficulty there. Um uh, I actually just finished editing another book for Llewellyn, which is going to be out next year, uh, which is they're calling it Llewellyn's Complete Book of American Folk Magic, uh, I think. And in that, I kind of do follow the sort of like, OK, let's look at the regions. But part of what I do is I sort of say like, OK, so here are the regions. 
But every once in a while, I'm also going to introduce somebody that you wouldn't necessarily associate with that region, but definitely represents a distinct flavor of practice, right? Um, so, for example, I have uh, J. Allen Cross talking about brujeria, American-style brujeria, uh, based in you know the Pacific Northwest. So, so there is some kind of pushing back at that. But at the same time, there are distinct... I tend to follow, um, there's a folklorist named Richard Dorson um, who wrote a book called Buying the Wind, uh, and he kind of divided up a number of folkloric regions there. Uh, Henry Glassie, another folklorist, has kind of looked at these distinct regions as sort of American, um, and really we're talking here European-American. I need to be very distinct about that. This, this, very seldom does this represent indigenous Americans who have their own um, national structures, uh, you know, tribal nation state had, uh, before European colonization. Um, but sort of from the European and, um, African American and, you know, Central American, um, sides of things, there are these kind of interesting, distinct regions that formed, uh, where you have kind of, you know, New England is kind of one that people think about, right. And you also have sort of the Maritimes moving up beyond New England into PEI and Newfoundland and Labrador and those areas. Um, and then you have um, what we might call uh, the sort of the, the mid-Atlantic tidewater area, which is parts of New York, it's Pennsylvania, it's parts of Virginia, it's Maryland, it's New Jersey, oftentimes kind of falls in there too, right? Um, you know, all of those kind of states. Then you get into the South, and the South is really funny because like um, it's – people like to think of it as one big monolith, um, but I actually had a conversation with my wife the other night where we were talking about like Texas and is Texas part of the, the South? And I'm very much in the camp like Texas is is a part of the South um, because it's actually part of two different versions of the South, unless you're talking about West Texas, in which case you're, it's a whole different region. <laughs> so it's just so big. Um, how do you handle that? Um, but so like the South is basically you have, you know, for example, the Upland South, which is this one section of the South um, that includes, you know, the Carolinas, parts of Virginia, Tennessee, Kentucky, you know, moving into parts of Arkansas a little bit. And, um, but then you have what we think of as the deep South, which is the sort of Gulf Coastal South, and that's Louisiana, and Southern Mississippi, and, you know, parts of East Texas and all this. Uh, and then you also have, you know, Florida is its own beast in some ways, um, where it is the South, but it also has its own distinct flavors kind of going on within it too. Um, the, Florida the, is very like culturally distinct and strange. Yeah. It is known. <laughs> it is. I, I, I love that they, ha they have their own cryptid, uh, the F Florida man that's just essentially <laughs> evolved <laughs> before our very eyes. I love it. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and then we have, you know, the Midwest is oftentimes kind of lumped together, but people don't really have a clear sense of what that means. And they sort of think the Midwest means everything in the middle. And that's not true. Uh, you know, there are. You know, you know, Detroit is is Midwest and Chicago can be Midwest and everything. But, you know, is Nebraska Midwest? I would argue no. I'd say Nebraska starts to be part of its own sort of Plains West region. There's the Deseret region, which is kind of based in the sort of Mormon cultural region. Um, Pacific Northwest has its own thing. California is uh, so it's what we call the left coast. Um, it sort of represents this this one section uh, of the map going down into Baja and everything. Um, there's the El Norte region, which includes parts of the American Southwest and a huge chunk of northern Mexico. Um, so there's lots of distinct regions. How those influence folk magic? We have some sort of historical roots. But like you said, once we hit the modern contemporary age, a lot of that is kind of out the window. <laughs> so it's a lot of, there's a lot of exchange going on now uh, where people, you can find Corenderismo um, as readily in 
you know, you can certainly find Canarismo as readily in New York City as you could find it, uh, you know, in El Paso, right? Like there's no no way you wouldn't find it in both places. Um, but you can also find it, you know, in, you know, Bloomington, Indiana, right? <laughs> like, right. Yeah. Yeah. Or, you know, you can go up to Minneapolis and they, I, 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 they're actually, no, I know some, uh, at least one person who's uh, sort of a Lukumi uh, priestess, um, a practitioner um, practicing up in, in Minneapolis. And I'd say, I, I know one, I'm sure there are dozens, if not hundreds. So <laughs> there's right. a wide variety of if intersections going on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm super interested to see, and granted, I don't know that I will ever reach the, this level of expertise. Um, but I would be super curious to see how, you know, something like, uh, uh, Lukumi or Brujeria or, um, you know, heathenry or whatever Mm -hmm. kind of all have different flavors on where you end up. Mm -hmm. So like, Um, I, I know that especially in heathenry, like a lot of, um, sacred, like plants are sacred, you know, to the tradition or, you know, there are a lot of like very specific, like location based things. Like Mm -hmm. I actually am very thankful that I live above the birch line. So we actually have birch trees where I live because they're very, very important. Mm -hmm. Um, but I also have a very good friend who is a heathen who lives in Texas. So his practice necessarily is different um and is influenced by like the other cultures that he is a part of for sure and i mean in that that, i mean folk magic so often is very tied not only to the culture but to the the landscape in which we find it um and that does shape it immensely i'd be very curious for you um you know if we're thinking about heathenry right that largely is being derived from sort of Scandinavian countries and, and, you know, Germany as well, to some extent, but all of that, like, you know, even if you're in the dead center of Germany, you're still a, you know, a day's, a day's drive, um, from a large body of water, right. Like an ocean or something like that. And where you are, um, because you're kind of in uh, Minnesota, right. So you have like the 10,000 lakes and the great lakes maybe, but like, does, does that, like does the distance from water, which I think is so, the water is so important to so many things and having to do with heathenry, does that influence you? The sort of space you have being away from water or did the Great Lakes sort of fill that gap for you? I'm, I'm curious about that. Um, so for me personally, um, if I do not get up to Lake Superior, I feel it like for a while, like that body of water just in general feels very spiritually necessary for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I actually live like not on the Mississippi because I'm not made of money, but you know, like I live (laughs) near the Mississippi river and Um, rivers are also really important in heathenry. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that can kind of serve that um, serve to fill that gap a little bit. I don't know what I would do, honestly, like if I were in a desert. Right. Yeah. I'm very, yeah. Curious. Yeah. Like I I've said before and I'll say it again. I don't know that I could ever live somewhere that does not get snow in the winter. Mm-hmm. Just like on a spiritual level, I think I would feel very lost if I didn't yeah. see snow. And it's very disturbing. I mean, this is this and many other reasons are why like climate change feels so like yeah. visceral to me. Like, you know, it's December. It, we're recording this in December and there's barely any snow outside and it feels yeah. very like threatening almost. 
Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, we know like obviously like some places have had these kind of mini ice ages and mini warm periods and things like that. So they've had to have dealt with versions of this, but on the scale that we're experiencing right now and with such a you know deep connection to sort of like what are, what are human beings doing here? You know, it's, it is really painful because I think there is this feeling of, for those of us who do, who do integrate with kind of these landscapes and this sort of animistic experience of the world. Um, I, I think like, you know, it's an ecological crisis at a sort of scientific physical level. It is also a massive spiritual crisis uh, to be dealing with climate change. And I don't think that's true for just us. I think that's true for so many people, um, whether they're realizing it or not, um, there's there's definitely the sense of like, oh my gosh, not just our physical, but our mythic landscapes are being dramatically altered. And that really reshapes the way we feel and think and interact. Ooh, so, so difficult. Yeah, it is. It's really, um, it's really, really intense. Um, and I mean, I also think about that with, you know, like immigration experiences as well. Yeah. Um, you know, how do you, I know that part of the reason why my ancestors settled here is because, you know, it's above the birch line. Like it does get snowy in winter. You know, they didn't like my ancestors in particular, like didn't go south. Um, although mm-hmm. there are plenty of Nordic people who did go south, but like sure. in general, if you're looking at the like 1800 censuses or whatever of immigration, like they, they tended to settle in the upper Midwest. Um, and I, I think that that kind of thing is very fascinating and, you know, obviously not to put people in boxes and say that like, you have to live in these places to practice these things. But I do think that our landscapes impact us greatly. Right. Well, I mean, it makes me think you mentioned the Hmong uh, community, which is is very, I think you have in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area, you have the largest or one of the largest Hmong communities outside of um, Laos that exists in the world. And Minneapolis is nothing like Laos, right? So like, right. Uh, you know, but they still retain like the Tishanive, um uh, shaman traditions uh, within that community. And it's so fascinating. Like, you're right. They've had to kind of adapt in these new spaces. And I, I you know, I really have, I've, I've tried several times to try to track down somebody from those traditions who'd be interested in talking to us on the show. Um, but, you know, obviously it's a very close community. And there is, you know, a lot of suspicion of, uh, you know, uh, fair enough, you know, uh, of sort of the, the, the white American Westerner. You know? Right. We don't have a good reputation when it comes to Laos for some reason. Um, so <laughs> our our bad it. reputation is well-deserved. In, in a little bit. Um, so, so I get that. But at the same time, there's definitely like, you know, I'd be fascinated to know like, oh my goodness, um, what is that experience like taking something that it was so connected to this sort of experience in Laos uh, in that landscape and sort of seeing it transposed into a landscape like Minneapolis, which is very different. So yeah, it's exactly kind of what you're talking about is this sort of like people kind of being in different places and does that alter how they experience the world? I, I think it must, right? Oh, absolutely. Um, so I kind of want to talk a little bit about folk healing and herbalism because you talk mm-hmm. a lot about how, you know, folk healing and folk magic, like, you know, they're really quickly intertwined in the tradition. But um, what are some of your favorite instances um, of folk healing or, you know, some of your favorite uh, stories about folk healing or even things that you have witnessed? Sure. Well, so I've witnessed um, two, two things that I have witnessed that I think are remarkable, um, both kind of that I've seen through the Pennsylvania German 
Barakara tradition, I've seen um, that blood charm that I mentioned, um, seen that used very effectively, um, closing up a wound right before my eyes. It's, it's uncanny. It was an uncanny experience to, to watch this um, this kind of young kid have their their um, wound sort of close up. Um, and it's just, it's just a recitation of this, this charm over it. Um, and it's, I mean, there probably is, you know, you could probably find a scientific explanation if you wanted to, but I was very much like, and, and there is magic. Um, uh-huh. and then I've seen another, another practitioner who used, a, um, a burn curing charm. Um, and they're a friend of mine and they had burned themselves very badly in the kitchen. Um, and they did this this very simple kind of charm. And I think they used some herbal treatments in there too. Um, and what should have very much left some distinct scarring within a week was gone, just gone without a trace. Um, and so, uh, and again, these are two tradition, you know, two things that are coming out of this one tradition that I think are just remarkable. Um, and it's wonderful to, to see. Now that doesn't mean I would say like, if you burn yourself, you should rely only on charms. It was wonderful <laughs> to see in that moment. I also think, medicine is good and we should do medicine. (laughs) Yes. Well, and I do think that to an extent, you know, especially with people who have like that blood stopping, you know, capability, Mm -hmm. like that is trained, that is practiced, you know, I'm not going to be able to do that. I I have a lot of faith in myself as a witch, but I am probably not going to be able to read that charm aloud and Mm. just like the first time do it. Yeah, no, I mean, you really have to enter into a, a sort of altered state of consciousness, consciousness for it to be working because the idea is that you're you're funneling power from a higher source. And there are a lot of practitioners I've seen who do it, who have very specific cosmologies that attach to that. And usually they're very Christian cosmologies. Although I do know people who practice, for example, Oglova, which is the Pennsylvania German version of heathenry. Um, and and the the person who did the burn charm uh, did was was doing that, um, so it is it's it's fascinating, um, it, it, you know. But the other side of that is I, I also really love. I, there's something about like the herbal charms and things like that that I, I you know I love working with herbs I, I really do, but it's it's important to remember that like when we talk about working with herbs it's not always just like a tincture of rosemary right like. <laughs> For a lot of people, you know, historically, like that wasn't what they were making. They were kind of like, I'm going to smash up this plant I found in my yard. I'm going to stick it on your bee sting and it's going to fix things for you. And if it doesn't, you're going to stop complaining about it. (laughs) So, so, you know, in like there's a lot of kind of trial and error. There's there's some interesting things that kind of happen with that. There's some really interesting accounts of these kind of like this sort of landing space between – herbal medicine and, you know, contemporary medicine. So for example, there's a diary of a woman named Martha Ballard, um, who was a midwife in the late 1700s to early 1800s. And she kept meticulous notes, fascinating read for historical reasons, but she's also kind of charting, you know, the way medicines are changing. And so like, she's making some herbal preparations, but she's also like, you know, hearing from doctors, these other things that she should be using too. So it's, it's an interesting, um, kind of movement there I think are fascinating which is the idea that your blood gets slow and sluggish in winter uh, and that in the spring you need to have these kind of um, potent green new green herbal things that are coming up out of the ground you need to smash them together and put them in your body and they will help move your blood and and what they're really talking about is you've been eating nothing but salted meat and uh, and uh, you know dried fruit for months you need a bunch of fresh green things in you because it's not the blood that needs to get moving. 
need to unstop right. some other things. So yes. that's something. And they also have, do you know sheep tea? Have you ever heard of sheep tea? Oh, I feel like I, I feel like I should know this, but I do not. Please tell me about sheep tea. So sheep tea, and this is one I've seen. Um, uh, for example, the Foxfire books have have accounts of this, which is is wonderful. Um, the Foxfire books, if you haven't read those, if you're looking for Appalachian lore, that is a place to go. Those are amazing. Um, but they talk about <clears throat> this this herbal healing thing called sheep tea, which is um, you take the droppings of sheep. And you steep them in water and you drink that. And that is sheep tea. Um, and it is used for a number of ailments. Uh, from There's things, things some that say that it's good for uh, reducing fever. There's some that use it as a spring tonic as well. So to get things moving, which makes some degree of sense. Since sheep are eating a vegetarian diet, therefore their droppings are going to be full of full of fiber. <laughs> so <laughs> there's some value to that, I guess. But it's, you know, again, herbal medicine isn't just, you know, like... You know, a distillation of mugwort combined with an essence of rose. Like sometimes it's like, what you're going to do is go out in the pasture after the sheep have had a big meal. Like sometimes <laughs> that's what your that's your first instruction. <laughs> so. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking, you know, also very specifically of like there are also remedies like that in Trolldom and um, uh, like things like priest's fat. Yeah. being a very common apothecary remedy um and you know like in trolldome like rendered fat being a part of the yes. quote-unquote herbal tradition yeah no that's true in appalachia as well we have what they're called greases and there you have skunk grease bear grease hog grease which is just lard yeah 100 percent for sure <laughs> yeah definitely um so i did want to ask you this because i think that it can be kind of um contentious uh especially because of our um very like weird ideas about like weird christians and also weird ideas about christianity mm -hmm. but um a lot of american folk magic refers to the devil or meeting the devil or mm -hmm. uh pledging yourself to the devil or learning from the devil at the crossroads oh. um and that is not necessarily satan um, mm -hmm. as you talk about in your book, but, uh, how do we approach these devilish figures? Sure. Well, I mean, you know, you've, you've probably encountered in folklore, the folklore studies that you've done, even for, for Trolldom or for, um, you know, any kind of Norse or Germanic kind of flavors of heathenry, you're going to run into these kind of figures that are, they're nature spirits. They're kind of found out in the woods. Um, they're, they're often, you know, um, kind of wild looking wild men wild uh creatures uh and they they're not they're not necessarily there to to lead you down the primrose path to hell but they are certainly not looking out for your best interests either uh they are very selfishly motivated they have their own agendas um <clears throat> and we see a lot of that kind of becoming translated into stories of for example in the grims you have the devil's sooty grandmother right that devil is not it's not sort of al Shatan from sort of Middle Eastern cosmology. Um, it's this much more distinctive kind of like wild imp figure um, that is there to, to lead to problems, to cause mayhem and mischief, but which is also something you can deal with. Uh, for example, um, I believe it's in Slavic lore, you have the Leshi, right? Uh, the Leshi, 
which is this wild creature, wild creature of the woods um, that sometimes sometimes you stumble upon it lying on the ground because it got really drunk one night. Um, but it also sometimes lures children away um, when they get lost in the woods. And the Leshi is, um, it's very knowledgeable about the woods and, and, and the world around it. Um, but it is, it is also dangerous. And it's important to remember it has both sides to it. Um, the Leshi, sometimes when it lures in a child, it will present the child with the option of, you know, it shows it a branch from a tree and it shows it a knife. If the child reaches for the knife, then the Leshi strangles it or kills it. Um, but if the child reaches for the branch of the tree, then the Leshi will teach it about herbal remedies or let it live with the Leshi and it becomes, you know, um, you know, uh, a, a child of the Leshi or a bride of the Leshi or uh, sometimes it's the mother of the Leshi. Um, sometimes they'll return to the world with a better knowledge of herbs and stuff like that. So they can be instructive too, right? But that doesn't make that doesn't mean that they also wouldn't kill you. <laughs> like, it's kind right. of like, have you, have you seen The Princess Bride? Um, yes. Where they talk about the Dread Pirate Roberts and he's like, good night, Wesley. Uh, good work today. I most likely kill you in the morning. Sleep well. Like that's kind of yep. how I imagine living with a lechie would work. It's most likely yes. kill you in the morning. Sleep well. Um, and so it's that kind of... Uh, that kind of a spirit. And it's very different than, you know, if you look in kind of Orthodox, particularly uh, Christian, it, it's so funny because like concepts of like Satan, El Shitan uh, from these kind of Middle Eastern cosmologies and mythologies, we tend to kind of lump them all together. But it really, like if you look into kind of historical Judaism, um, there's not, this, I mean, this figure is sort of like, it's sort of an opposing attorney in God's judicial system. Um, mm -hmm. that's kind of it, not an ultimate evil trying to lead you into a place of eternal destruction. Cause a lot of Jewish lore doesn't really believe in that. Um, they don't really have a, like they have Sheol, they don't have hell, right? It's different. Uh, Sheol is much more similar to like Hades and the Greek mythology where it's kind of like, you're a ghost and you're kind of bored all day, but you're not being punished. You know? Right. <laughs> um, yeah. Different. Um, whereas once you get into kind of Christian and then, um, later sort of uh, Islamic mythology, then there does start to be this, because they're pulling from other threads like Zoroastrianism, they're pulling from this idea of sort of like ultimate good, ultimate evil, place of ultimate evil. You know, they're kind of developing a mythology around these, these places. And the devil has a place in that cosmology. Um, the sort of El Shitan, who also gets called the devil, has a place in that cosmology, but he is sort of the ultimate ruler of this place and has all of this phenomenal cosmic power, right? As the genie and Aladdin would say. <laughs> Um, and Jin are kind of another example you could get into there too, but, um, but you know, he has all this and then you have these folk devils that are showing up in stories where like the devil's grandmother who, where in the world do you have a grandmother of the devil and, you know, Christian scripture, you just don't, um, you know, the devil's grandmother's like, no, oh, no, hide, hide over here in this pot and the devil's going to come in and he's going to you know poke around this, these souls in his, his pot that, you know, are like the souls in hell, quote unquote. Uh, but you can trick him, right? Or you have the story of um, Jack-o'-lantern. The Jack-o'-lantern story is such a good one here, um, where Jack is a terrible, wicked human being. Uh, the devil basically comes to collect him and he's like, well, how about you buy me a drink first? Uh, and they, they go out, you know, drinking and the Jack is like, oh, you know, I didn't buy, I didn't bring a, a, any money, but I got an idea. Why don't you turn yourself into a gold coin? I'll use you to pay the bartender. Uh, and then later on, you can just transform back and we'll go off to hell. And as soon as the devil transforms himself into a gold coin, Jack tucks him into a Bible or next to a, you know, a cross in his pocket um, and says, well, I'm not going to let you out until you promise not to take me to hell. And he tricks the devil. He outwits the devil. This is phenomenal cosmic power. 
I don't think so. Right? Like this is this is a, a folk iteration of kind of an impish figure that can be outsmarted and outwitted. It's not this kind of like ultimate evil uh, cosmologically. It's something that you can really kind of you know manipulate and mess with. And and I would argue most of those stories seem to be about you know how do you outsmart a creature like that? How do you you know encounter a leshy? How do you encounter? Um, a, a der Tufel, right? How do you encounter a Wudos, uh, you know, and and walk away from it intact? You have to trick them. You have to be smarter than them. It's not about being good because Jack isn't good. He's literally like one of the wickedest people on the planet, but he's smart. And okay. so, yeah. And so in a lot of these cases, he's just kind of, it's, it's he's much more Bugs Bunny <laughs> than he is like a, an angel, right? He's just right. more clever uh, than than anybody else around him. So I think yeah. when you get into this mythology, these folklore, folkloric tales of the devil, what you're talking about are these kind of impish creatures that, um, yes, the outside world, sometimes people do call it the devil, but they're really talking, they'll talk about the, de- you know, devils are getting into you, right? Or are there multiple devils? Uh, there's you know, devils here and the devils here and the devils here, all these, all these places at the same time, because it's not really one. It's, it's, uh, you know, a whole collective of these kind of like, very mischievous, very dangerous spirits that can also um, potentially inform or educate you in some way. And you don't have to work with them. I wonder if um, the devil, like the word the devil has just shifted in meaning. And so now it's been kind of like collapsed into meaning like devil and Satan are sort of like two sides of the same coin for us and like contemporarily, but in the past, maybe devil meant something else. Sure. It was like the, the difference between daemon and demon, right? Where you have, mm-hmm. you know, in ancient Greece, a diamond, a daemon was not necessarily an evil thing. It was this kind of spirit form, right? Um, but over time, that term kind of gets reappropriated by, um, you know, quite frankly, kind of the Christi- Christian um, orthodoxy and says, well, you know, those were not good things that you're encountering because they're not God. Therefore they, you know, if they're not God, they're not angels. Therefore they got to be evil. So they're what we mean is a demon and in devils kind of suffer the same, I think, change of, of terminology there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, all right. So we have been talking for a while and I want to respect your time. Um, so is there anything that we should know? like coming up from you, you had already mentioned the next book that is coming mm-hmm. up from Llewellyn, which you are an editor of. Um, what other mm-hmm. projects have you got going on? Uh, a lot. I never am short on projects, thankfully. Um, I, you know, I probably need to sleep more than I do, frankly. But um, but uh, so, yeah, I've got that book. I'm going to be doing a reissue uh, and a revision of my Cardamancy book uh, pretty soon with some expanded sections there, um, which Ooh, is good. <laughs> appropriately 54 devils um so we'll talk uh, you know i'll have i'll have some of that coming coming out i'm working on a, a book with lane we're, we're working on a book uh, that we've got some proposals out to a couple of different uh publishing companies we're just kind of waiting to see you know who's interested and who wants to, to bet on uh and then uh, i've got at a minimum two three other books that i've already kind of started working on and outlining so um very busy, very, uh, you know, active. I have no idea when those will wind up appearing any place, but, uh, some, some of them, one of them is more academic. 
One of them is kind of more fun. Uh, so we'll kind of see where things go on that. But yeah, very busy. And then the podcast, of course, is, is always very busy. Thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. Um, it has been truly a delight to speak with you. And I hope that you will come on in the future. is it for today's episode of the heathen's journey podcast thank you so much for listening i'd like to take a moment to give a shout out to all of my patrons for making this work possible if you would like to join them you can go to www.patreon.com slash northern and choose the tier that is right for you through the Patreon, I host a popular book club, monthly stop sessions, and other fun online events. We are also currently deep in study of Maria Kvilhog's Seed of Idrisil. I also post dark and full moon ritual guides, excerpts from my forthcoming book, lessons from the Empress, and community readings. We have a good time! Please join us. As always, resources mentioned in the podcast are linked in the show notes. Thank you so much for coming on this journey with me. Until next time, stay weird.